With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Take it away, Matt. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Hockey News Fantasy Podcast powered by BetMGM. It's Matt Larkin here. And that intro music from Stephen Ellis, our producer, it made me want to run through a wall. I'm pretty pumped up right now. Woo! That's how pumped up I am right now, okay? I recorded that in university. It was supposed to be at a TV show back then, uh, and it was supposed to be the theme song, but we chose a different song, which the uh, lyrics were pretty inappropriate, so I'm glad it was an instrumental version. Okay, yeah, that's good. I I understand. I mean, I have a daughter who loves Nicki Minaj and is five years old, so there's a lot of awkward situations with inappropriate lyrics. If you notice the background here, I'm at home. I'm building a new office, and it's partway done, but there's nothing on the wall yet. I'm just trying to do my part. Stay a little bit safe from Omicron, not go to the studio all the time. So that's why we're doing this podcast from home, but we are ready to start. So as always, I'll give you a quick update on my league to see how much you can trust me. And right now you can trust me. My team is a powerhouse right now. I've got Kirill Kaprizov. I've got Nazem Kadri. I've got Miko Rantanen, Sasha Barkov. Everything is going swimmingly in my teams. I think 32 games over 500, just running through the league right now. So it's my best chance in a long time, I think to make a, a really serious title run, and I'm feeling pretty good, even though Brian Costello, senior editor of the Hockey News, is nipping at my heels. So is Canadian singer Michael Bublé. I beat him last week in our head-to-head matchup. So I'm in a good spot. You can trust me for now. And let's start with some pickups of the week. We're going to go shallow leagues first. Ivan Barbashev of the St. Louis Blues, available in 34% of leagues. And I understand, in this case, why he's available. I think people are slow to trust him, right? It's his sixth year in the NHL. He's 26 years old, and he does have a really high shooting percentage. So maybe people are thinking, oh, it's a flash in the pan. He's been a checker for most of his career. But you have to look closer. 
Yes, he has a high shooting percentage, but he has a high shooting percentage for his entire career. He's just a very accurate shooter. So we can't guarantee that there's going to be a regression there. His role has changed significantly. He's averaging more than four minutes above what his career time on ice was going into this season. He's playing on the first line with Ryan O'Reilly and Luke Shen, or Brandon Shen, I should say. And it's funny because those are three centers, three guys that have played center for the Blues now all on the same line, and it's working. Uh, Barbashev's on pace for more than 30 goals, and he's getting a, a fair amount of hits. And you could say, okay, is he a sell high? Maybe he is. Maybe that shooting percentage does come down. Maybe his role changes because he's capable of playing in the bottom six. But either way, just pick him up, and you can all you can you can be the seller. Sell him high. Pick him up now if he's available in all these leagues, and hold him for a few more weeks. If the numbers still look good, then you trade him. There you go. Uh, next up in medium leagues, I feel like I'm, I, I mentioned him a lot. He just he, his career has not matched the promise he showed as a rookie and. Just the overall pedigree of being a top 10 pick in the NHL draft, Clayton Keller, at one point our scouting panel for our Future Watch magazine, ranked him the number one prospect in the game. And it hasn't quite happened for Clayton Keller. At the same time, 62% of leagues he's available. Uh, I think that number is is too high. I think he should be owned in many more leagues. Um, I think just with Arizona, what's happened this year with the tank job, the players kind of have a stink on them in terms of fantasy value. It scares people away. People think, well, you can't have an Arizona player. You're going to have terrible plus minus. If you look closer at Clayton Keller, mm, past two weeks, he's even plus minus. Minus two in the last month. I think it's minus six on the year. So he's not going to kill you in plus minus. And I think he provides enough other attributes that you actually do want him in fantasy. He's on pace for more than 30 goals, 200 plus shots. So that's a guy that's available in many leagues right now. And he's going to help you in multiple categories. He should not be available on many wires. He's a sneaky depth addition that can actually produce, I think, very nicely for your lineup. Okay, the deep league pickup. I am the proud owner of this player. I scooped him a couple weeks ago. Matt Boldy of the Minnesota Wild. If you remember, my sleeper list at the beginning of the season included Matt Boldy. I've been hiding him for a long time. He's just one of those kids. He scores everywhere he goes. Going back to his time in junior, USNTDP. The Iowa Wild, he was better than a point-a-game player over two seasons. He made it look pretty easy. And he's just a natural, pure scorer. He has the first-round draft pedigree as well with the Wild. So it was just a matter of getting him into the lineup. And then he's a must-add player. He's available in 96% of leagues right now. So the hockey world overall, the fan fantasy hockey world hasn't really caught on yet he's played four games he's got four points already he's got nine shots in four games he's playing I think with Kevin Fiala right now and nothing that he's done so far is a fluke in my mind the Wild have been waiting for him they have intentions to use him in a scoring role so I don't think it's going to be a flash in the pan I think it's possible that Boldy is a fantasy worthy player a rosterable player even in medium leagues for the rest of the season so watch him carefully in a deep league I would add him right now I've already added him and I'm enjoying it so far Next up, we have the WTF pickup of the week. It's Jack Hughes. He's available in 23% of leagues. What's going on? Come on, everybody. It's happening. Like I even wrote a note. Says, I, the note just says, it's happening, folks. Let's go. That was my note that I put down. Because we know Jack Hughes was always projected to be a superstar in the NHL. Had a really bad rookie season that was also unlucky. Last year started strong, regressed, but the underlying numbers were really good. He was generating chances. Now he's got 20 points in 20 games. He's producing, and I think he's going to sustain top 50 overall production the rest of the year. There's no way he should be available in, I think, any league. You're going to be getting a point-per-game player. He's figured it out. He's gotten his body a little bit stronger, too. He's got his confidence. He's gener generating a lot of chances. So just 
make sure Jack Hughes is on your team. Yes, there's been some injury problems he's had to deal with a little bit so far in his career, but either way, when he's healthy, you want him in there. And he's a must-own player, I think, in any league right now. Okay, questions are coming soon, but before we do that, let's do the tip of the week. And what I want you to do right now, fantasy managers, is take stock of your weaknesses. And what I mean by that is take a look at the roto stats of your league. Right now, the NHL season's about half over, so in fantasy, that means it's more than halfway through the season. And we're not so deep that you can't turn. Let's say you have a team that's kind of struggling on the playoff periphery or if it's a roto league, you know, the bottom half. It's getting close to the point of no return, but we're not there yet. There's still enough time left in the season that you can fix this. You can turn the ship around. Uh, and I know a lot of standard leagues, so I use Yahoo as my example for most because it's the most common league. They have a feature that lets you sort head-to-head -head stats or roto stats. So you can see where you rank in every stat category for the year. And that's a great way to sort of look at where your weak spots are. Um, I think, especially in head-to-head, -head, but Roto, of course, obvious reasons. The whole point of Roto is to have Roto balance categories, but head-to-head -head as well. If you're balanced across many categories, if you're trying to be, let's say, top five in every category, then you can catch an opponent head-to-head -head and win big if they're not a balanced team. And it's very hard for you to lose big because you're good in so many categories. You don't really get blown out very often. So it's a great way just to keep padding your record. And when you lose, you lose small. So even in my league, I lost a couple weeks ago, but I lost 7-6. But when my team wins, it might win 11-1 because it's really balanced right now. So take stock of your weaknesses and make the necessary moves to address them and trade, of course, from your area of surplus. So if you're first in the league in shots by a mile, and you're dead last in assists, it's okay to go get a playmaker and sacrifice one of your shooters. It's no problem, right? Okay, Stephen, I think I'm ready for some questions from you. I think we have some good ones this week. I'm excited. I'm going to take a nice big sip of coffee, and uh, let's let's get it going, my friend. Jack Hughes? Seriously? So that, that one was a bit of surprising. Uh, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but like, like even though he kind of had a couple of tough years to start his career. It's like, it, it almost like, unless your league is really like really shallow, it, it just seems like a worthwhile thing to pick him up because we know he's capable of really good offense. He's capable of a lot of things. It was just a matter of time until that kind of kicked off. So that doesn't make any sense to me. It's true. And wow, look at Steven. If you're watching this stream, his his background is just dunking on mine. So much hockey memorabilia. I see a Cristobal Uwe poster in the background, and I just got nothing. I got a blank wall. I have a bunch of hockey news magazines over here. Eventually, I will decorate the space, but right now, it's it's hurting. I'm, I apologize for it. I, I got a lot of hockey cards. A lot of people ask what they are. There's a, You probably can't see it, but there's a Mario Lemieux like jersey card from Team Canada. That's one of my favorite cards. I got an Emirates oh. Mashmeyer Team Canada jersey card, and that's a OVO. I, I don't like Drake, but it's a cool hockey puck from Drake's new hockey uh, collection. All right. The first question comes from Ryan, not Ryan Kennedy. Uh, I'm in a 12-team, five-player keeper, head-to-head -head banger league with uh, FW and SHP. I got Huberto in third place with a strong team. What would a trade look like? And let me, I believe there's a bit more to this question. I just could not fit in if I'm correct. And that is, uh, what would a trade look like if you traded? Draft picks could be included. Huberto for Rantanen. Huberto for Pasternak, Huberto for Ovi. These are my offers. Okay, yeah. So, Ryan, I do think all these offers are pretty fair because in, in each case, all of those players are probably first-round picks if we had an, a fantasy a redraft right now. So no matter what, I, I don't know if there's any scenario in which a draft pick needs to be involved. So I think the value is pretty fair there. Um, to me, in banger leagues, you know, Ovechkin is always a cheat code. And if you're not familiar with Banger League, it means a league that has, you know, tough guy categories, whether it's hits, blocks, penalty minutes, that kind of thing. It's mainly hits that's the defining characteristic of a Banger League. So 
Alice Ovechkin is always a cheat code in the banger leagues. He gets so many shots. He leads the league in shots. He gets a lot of hits as well. Um, so if you're really going for it and trying to win right now, you could see the logic of chasing Ovi. He'd be the person in redraft that I rank the highest. But this is a keeper league. You have to factor that in. So I do think you can make a case for Ubedo being more valuable than Ovi in the keeper format. Ubedo scoring a ton of points. He's challenging for the scoring lead now as well. Uh, he's obviously better for assists than goals. But he also is underrated in terms of what he brings to the hits category. He actually has almost as many hits as Ovechkin right now. So you're not necessarily getting the hits edge with, with Ovi. You're getting the shots edge. Uh, and to me, you know, I'm in, and I'm in a banger league. I own Miko Rantanen and I would rank him maybe even still above Jonathan Uberdo because Rantanen's scoring upside is so big right now. I tweeted the other day in his past 82 games, he has 111 points. People don't really understand how much of a superstar Miko Rantanen has become. He's a tremendous playmaker, but the goal scoring is really catching up. He's becoming an amazing all around player. So to me, it's like maybe he's the most valuable keeper in a standard format, if you're really worried about the banger categories, if you're winning now, if you're going for it, if you think you can win your championship right now, I can see the logic of going for Ovechkin. But otherwise, I think you might be better off sitting on Jonathan Uberdo. He's going to get a lot of points. He's going to get a lot of hits. If you're looking for pure points, then I think Rantanen would be the best option. All right. Uh, something maybe noteworthy for fantasy hockey, Jacob Chikorin is expected to be back. Uh, so that uh, he hasn't played since December 10th uh, between an injury and COVID. So that's a, a kind of a good boost for the Arizona Coyotes, who uh, they've had a kind of an interesting couple of weeks between uh, wins against the Leafs. The Habs were important ones, and they're no longer last. So good on them. Next question comes from, speaking of Rantan, Rantan Raven. Uh, when keeping drafting players, how much weight do you put into status? Priority on a UFA year? Are you tentative after a big deal is signed? What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a good question. So I don't pay a lot of attention to the idea of contract year. Uh, if it's a player that's on a winning team, uh, yeah, I, I just think it's an overrated thing. Um, and I think the reason why I don't pay as much attention to a player on a winning team is because I don't think that player is going to get traded from that team, right? If they're in contention, if it's a contract year for a player who's in their UFA walk year on a bad team, and it means they might get traded in season, that's different. That is something that you can pay attention to. So let's say, you know, a Marc-Andre Fleury, you have to be wary about his value, not knowing how Chicago was going to do this year, not knowing if he's going to get traded midseason. So that's an example of a contract year player that you have to watch carefully and, and be a little cautious in terms of projecting their long-term value. Uh, but if if a player resigns with his current team, uh, then I'm because this is this is to answer the second question. By the way, it was sort of a two part question from Randon and Raven. So the second part was, are you tentative tentative after a big deal is signed? So if a player is resigning, he's really not changing situation at all. I'm not worried at all. I, I think I just for the most part keep the player's value the same in my mind going into the next season. The only time a big contract would change my valuation of a player is if he just goes to a different team, completely different situation. So if you see what I'm getting at, I'm not the type that's going to worry about money. I'm not worrying about a player being really motivated by money during the season. The NHL has got so much parity and it's such a team oriented culture. People want to win. I don't think they're going to change the way they play for money. I don't think that's as common. You might see it more in a sport like basketball or baseball where not as many teams are dominant. It's a lot harder to win a championship. So just having great individual numbers might matter more. But I don't think that's really the case in the hockey culture right now. So I don't worry about the dollar figures. It's more about where a player is going to be going. That factor, that element of it, I can see why contract your contract status could come into play. All right. Next question comes from Stan Fox. What are your overall thoughts on Elias Pettersson? He's so up and down at the point that I'm not sure what to make of him. 
Yeah, it's frustrating. I feel for you if you're a Pedersen owner. I'm not right now, but we know his talent has not gone anywhere. He's electric. He's got tremendous puck skills. He's got a tremendous shot. Uh, I think there are arguments that his competitiveness has sort of come and gone. Uh, and I did expect a quick change under Bruce Boudreaux. It's one of the things that Boudreaux is known for. It's getting the most out of players. It's unlocking their potential. So admittedly, I expected a really quick spike in production from Pedersen. We haven't seen it yet. doesn't mean it can't happen this season. Um, and especially if you look at his shooting percentage, the last I looked, it was, I didn't check after, I think I was crunching some numbers yesterday. So they've played a game since, but uh, he was at 9.6% going into Tuesday's games. His career mark was 17.6%. So obviously there's some major positive regression going or, or coming for Pedersen, right? But that doesn't explain all of his struggles. It's not just an unlucky season. If you look at his five on five metrics, he's at career low rates in terms of shot generation, shot attempts, scoring chances, everything has gone way down for him. So he's not actually creating at the same level. So based on that, yes, we can, we can predict a rebound and shooting percentage, but when he's not actually generating the same number of looks, I don't think he's going to bounce all the way back. And I don't think you can guarantee that he's going to be a top 50 player the rest of the season. I think he's going to be better. Yes. So you can make a case for acquiring him for 75 cents on the dollar. But I think if you can trade him and get a top 50 player back, because going into the season, I would have called him a top 20, top 25 fantasy asset. If you can get a top 50 player for Elias Patterson in a trade right now, I think that's a fair deal to make if you're if you're tired of him and want to sell him off. All right, next question comes from Ah One One Two. I'm assuming that's how they pronounce their name. Uh, is there a goaltender that maybe isn't a top ten name right now that could strike gold in fantasy in the second half? Yeah, there are a few to watch. I made a few different notes. Um, guys to keep an eye on getting closer to the trade deadline would be Eunice Corpsal in Columbus, Thomas Grice, I think, especially in Detroit. Uh, they're both really capable of stepping in as backups and they could be great injury replacements. So if there was a team that had a starter that got hurt and then you see that team acquire Thomas Grice for the stretch run, then his fantasy value goes way up. So those are a couple names to watch. Um, I think you're also looking at, you know, who are some teams that have a backup that has outplayed the starter and it's on a contending team. So there's a little bit of a goalie battle brewing, right? So one, I think you have to look at Capo Kakanen in Minnesota, obviously, Cam Talbot's been hurt, so he's getting a bigger opportunity. But overall, he's outplayed Talbot. And I think Minnesota, they do view Kakanen as the goaltender of the future, at least until Jesper Wallstedt's ready, right? So I think that's an example where you could see Kakanen just take the job and keep it going forward. I know it didn't happen last year, but if he does this again, it could happen. Even Billy Husso in St. Louis, he's really outplayed Jordan Bennington. And the Blues are a contender. And I, obviously, Bennington is their long-term starter. He's their Stanley Cup winner. But... If Huso just keeps showing him up, you have to wonder if he's going to start to siphon away more starts. Uh, if the Oilers don't find another goalie when Mike Smith is healthy and ready to go, he might be more consistent option for the stretch run, of course. Um, but to me, if I have to make one pick to fully answer the question, it's Jake Ottinger in Dallas. So he's already uh, moved up and, and leapfrogged Anton Kudobin to share the net with Braden Holtby. And of course, Ben Bishop has retired. He's a legitimate prospect, a first-round pick. He's got a 9-12 career save percentage in 42 games. And Braden Holpe is a pending UFA. Even though the Dallas Stars are still in the playoff hunt, they could still consider moving Holpe because they have could open, they could, they could bring back up. And Ottinger could just step in and be the starter. So there's a case to be made for selling off Holpe and just handing the keys to Ottinger since he's been already pretty solid. And that's a guy on a team. Dallas has shown the ability to get hot. They're still a pretty good team. And they 
are more often than not a stingy team, you could have a run down the stretch where Ottinger becomes a top 10 goaltender. I don't think it's inconceivable at all. One other name I'd throw on there, his stats are not totally spectacular by any means, but uh, Anton Forsberg on uh, Ottawa. This is a guy that it gives his team a chance to fight kind of every single night. And he just looking at his last couple of games, the, the, both of them are last two games are losses, but both games he had over 30 saves and played pretty well. It was not the reason that team lost. And um, the, the Ottawa's a team that has a lot of times, a lot of times they can't score goals and he has to play out of his mind. So uh, uh, Ottawa's goalie situation is not one I would love to touch, but it's a cheap option. Maybe in a really deep league, if you need a third goalie. Next question comes from Strong Dog PEI. Thoughts on Tuka Rask's output with Boston for the rest of the year? And I don't know if you saw the game last night, but uh, Tuka Rask, not so good. Yeah, and I wouldn't worry too much about that one game um, because if you look at Tuka Rask's career splits, so uh, if you don't count May as part of his splits, he's only played three games ever in May in the regular season, um, but his lowest save percentage by month is October. So he is traditionally a slow starter. So right now is basically his October. So to me, he's actually a buy low, if anything. I wouldn't worry about him starting slowly. That said, uh, we know that even before he had his surgery, even, you know, the last several seasons, Tukarask had his starts really managed, right? More than almost any other starting goaltender in the league, he had that workload managed and it worked really well for him. It helped him play better in the playoffs. So right now we know with the surgery factored in, that workload is going to be managed even more. They've already said, the Bruins have said, he's going to get a maximum of two starts a week. So you could be looking at a 50-50 split with Linus Allmark going forward. So I do think for rate stats, goals against average, save percentage, Tuka Rask is going to get hot. The Bruins are still a great defensive team and the system in which they limit chance quality. Some goalies play better with more work, but Rask has always been a good fit. It's worked very well in Boston. So he's going to get you a great goals against average and save percentage once he shakes off his rust. But if you're looking to him to be your true number one in fantasy for your volume stats, your wins and saves and shutouts, I think it's going to be a little bit more dicey because he's just not going to play that much. So to me, Tuka Rask would be an ideal number two goalie on your fantasy team to bring down your averages. But I don't think you can look to him to be a top five, maybe not even a top 10 goaltender the rest of the year. I'd say more top 15. Thing about Boston there is like Jeremy Swayman was the better goalie that uh, before Rask came in this year, and it's like an unfortunate situation where it's like no like no win there. Like obviously you want to bring Rask and Rask in theory could still be better than Linus Olmark, who's had a rough year. But then you got Swayman who probably should be the starting goalie right now based off the way he's performed, getting sent down to the AHL, and he's too good for that already. Like he's it, it's kind of a tough situation. And there's talk people on Boston Bruins like websites like, should they trade Swayman? It's like that'd be the stupidest thing you possibly do. Mm-hmm. In an ideal world, you don't have Linus Olmark underperforming at his contract. And if you're able to move him in that case, then you have Rask as like Swayman's like mentor. And then you go from there. But uh yeah, kind of a tough one there because I know Swayman wasn't bad fantasy wise this year. Uh it's true. And it was a bad contract to sign with Ulmar because it put them in this position because Jeremy Swayman is was waiver exempt. So he had to be the odd man out. The writing was on the wall from the start. As soon as Rask comes back, Swayman's the only guy you can send down, whether it's fair or not. So to me it just kind of highlights why it was a silly move to sign Ulmark in the first place, especially if you had the intention of bringing back Rask all along because it was a four or five year deal, right? So what do you do with Allmark now? See, that was the thing. It was like at the time, it didn't, it wasn't really clear that Rask was for sure coming back. If he was going to come back, it was going to be Boston. But was he going to come back? Mm-hmm. I was convinced that he was just going to just train and play for Finland at the Olympics and get with that one last chance there. He, he probably would have been the starting goalie for Finland, uh, even with all his time off. But 
it is what it is. Next question. I uh, don't believe it's goalie related. Uh, Sam Higgins. How do you handle players that are in heavy trade rumors? Should I be looking to move them or is it two player specific? Yeah, I do think you have to tread carefully. There are certain situations where you put a lot of weight into it. Other times you don't. So if a player is requesting a trade, even it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be prepared for it to happen because if that player has term left on his deal, then you might not necessarily get a trade right away. So to me, it's really about term. If a player has term left, he's in trade rumors. The list of suitors and outcomes is so wide, it's really hard to predict because a player with term left, it's not even just a, a buyer team that could be interested in that player, right? And those trades, there's far less rush to make them happen. Those types of trades often will happen at the draft. So I don't think it makes sense to predict those types of deals. So for example, Jacob Chikrin. If you're a Jacob Chikrin owner, I don't think you can say, well, I, I'm going to try and trade him away because I'm afraid of where he's going to get dealt or I'm going to try and acquire him because I think he's going to get traded tomorrow because of the term left. I think it's a risky move, but pending UFAs, it's a totally different story. If you see a pending unrestricted free agent who's on a bad team, it's pretty much a guarantee that player will get moved by the trade deadline. And in that case, you can react. And to me, it's more about acquiring that type of player than trading away because typically Depending you a fan of bad teams getting traded to a better team, which is going to spike their trade value. So picture Taylor Hall a year ago. He's having a nightmare season on the Buffalo Sabres. You're not looking to trade Taylor Hall because you're selling low and his, his value is going to go up. If anything, you're looking to acquire that player because you know he's going to get traded to a better team, which he did. And Taylor Hall was actually quite useful in fantasy down the stretch. So this year, it's about looking for the next version of that Taylor Hall, the player on a, a weaker team. So an example we talked about on our, on our main podcast, someone like Nick Letty in Detroit, he's a pending UFA. He's probably going to get traded. Maybe he goes to a contender where he gets to play in the top four and get some power play time. So someone like that, who's going to move to a, a better situation. That's what you're looking for. If you're trying to project trades in real life for your fantasy team. All right, next question comes from Reed Maestrom. With the new Habs GM in place, do you foresee any current Montreal players getting a boost in value because of a trade? Yeah, that's a tough one. You know, when a coach comes to town, uh, it's very common that you see immediate changes, immediate results, different systems, guys getting put on different lines, all that type of stuff. So there is an immediate impact. Um, but for a GM, it's much more of a slow burn. He has to sort of see what he has in the team and it's more likely he's going to make moves, you know, maybe the trade deadline or the draft. So in the case of Kent Hughes, I don't think he's going to have a major impact on the Habs players value unless he impacts the team, not by who he has on the team, but who he sends away from the team. So we know the Habs are going to be sellers at the trade deadline. They do have a lot of players with a lot of term left on their deal, on their deals. But one guy I would have a, a, an eye out for in terms of who could, have a change that is fantasy relevant is Jonathan Drouin. So he has one year left after this one. I think it's five and a half million dollars. Uh, but if you, let's say you projected Montreal to eat half that salary in a deal. So then he's, you know, 2.75 million. That's much more palatable. He was tied with Nick Suzuki for the team lead, lead, lead in points the last I checked. So he still has some fight left in him, some offensive ability. He's not an old player yet at all. He's still in his twenties. So that's someone that maybe you see him moved by the deadline. And if he's leaving this pressure packed market which he admits gave him anxiety he goes to a different team in which or on which he feels a lot less pressure you could see a significant change to his value so that would be one player if you're trying to project a change but it's not based on what's going to happen within the team it's a prediction that maybe he could get moved to a new team all right next question comes from jpw trying to fill at the bottom of my fantasy team mostly targeting points ppp shots and hits 
pick one, Ardvidsson, Tuck, Wallstrom, Zucker, Raquel, Comtois. I want all six. Yeah, I can see why you want all six. They're all pretty valuable in deeper leagues, and they're all pretty close in value. So to me, if you go through that group, the safest bet is Victor Arvidsson. His role in LA has been pretty solid all year. That's why they gave up picks to get him. They want to use him in a scoring line situation, and he is a shot-generating machine. So if you're looking for pure shots and the safest bet, I think that makes sense. If you're looking for your upside, I think Oliver Wallstrom would be the player with the most upside in this group in terms of his raw goal scoring ability. He's also, you know, first round prospect. He's got that pedigree. The problem there is that the ice time just hasn't been there. He's, you know, playing 11 minutes, 13 minutes, 16 minutes. It's whatever the nightly deployment is. He's not being entrusted with a big role just yet. To me, the guy I would be most intrigued by in this group is Alex Tuck. Um, he's healthy now. He's already been a point per game player with the Sabres this year. Uh, of course, he came there in, in the Jack Eichel trade. If you look back to last season, so with last season and this season combined, he's played 62 games. He's got 20 goals, 40 points, 157 shots, 61 hits, and projected over 82 games. That's 26 goals, 52 points, 208 shots, 81 hits. So that's a pretty nice statistical buffet. Uh, and the Sabres, they need him. They want him to be a frontline player. So to me, I think Alex Tuck is the guy I'd be most interested in from that group. All right. That's an interesting one. Uh, Greg Short says, Troy Terry, is this something you foresee him being able to do each year? Talking about how good he's been, obviously. Uh, or is this just the reality of the Ducks playing against weaker competition? I hope Greg Short is like seven foot one. That would be, be kind of cool. We will ask him that. Yeah. <laughs> so first off, I wouldn't worry about competition at all. I think that's sort of an arbitrary thing to worry about. I, I just for fun was looking at Troy Terry splits. Like he's got two, he's got three goals against St. Louis. He's got two goals against Vegas. So it's not like he's picking on bad teams. So I would take that thought and just get it out of your mind. Don't worry about that at all. Uh, the next thing I would be looking at with Troy Terry, of course, is the shooting percentage, 24.4%. That is extremely high. It's not sustainable for anyone. So that number is going to come down. But it's sort of the reverse of the Pedersen question. So it's like, yes, okay, Pedersen, you know the percentage is going to come up, but he has a lot of underlying uh, problems too. With Terry, we know the shooting percentage is going to come down, so his puck luck is going to regress. But his underlying numbers are drastically improved across the board. So he's actually become a much better contributor. He's generating a lot more chances, whether it's shot generation, scoring chance generation, everything's better. He actually is a changed player. So I think if you factor in the shooting percentage regression, he's not going to be a 50 goal scorer, but he could be now settling in as someone you can count on for 30 goals. So my overall analysis of him would be he is legit. He did have prospect pedigree. He wasn't a first round pick, so it wasn't like he was a slam dunk guy, but he showed very well with Team USA, you know, winning goal at the World Juniors. He was on the radar as like a B plus level prospect for, for several years. So it's not like this is totally out of nowhere. There was pedigree there. Uh, and I think he's done enough good things under the hood that there's a degree of sustainability, but he is playing over his head. So that's where I'd put him. I'd say next year, he's going to be a 30 goal, 60 point guy, not what he's tracking to be right now, which I don't, I didn't check his pace, but it's probably 50 goals, something like that. I invested a lot into Troy Terry hockey cards. Uh, him, Sam Steele, and uh, Comtois when they were all kind of just coming in the league. I'm kind of hoping, you know, continue on this. I could sell those cards for a good value at some point. Next question comes from Nick Sends4. Long term, do you like Kako or Stutzel more? Yeah, that's an interesting one. So drafted uh, a year apart. Um, was it the year apart? No, were they both the 2020 draft? No, so, so Kako was 2019. Yeah, 2019. Stutzel's 
Yes. yes, but I, it's an interesting one because, yeah, they're different years. They don't really have much connection there, but I'm assuming Nick Sands 4 is a Sands fan. And you look at it, Sousa, there's been like, when's he going to get that full breakout we're looking for? But Kako, even more so. Yes, because he's been in the league for an extra year. So when I, it's funny, you know what's funny? So for our draft preview uh, magazine, I did the big feature on both these guys. So in 2019, I did the Kako feature. 2020, I did the Stutzla feature. So in both cases, I interviewed them. And, and Kako, their- Kako didn't speak much English. Am I correct on that at that point? Yes, Kako was translated through his agent. Yes. Uh, so, I, But where Stutzla spoke really good English, underrated English. So with Kako... Um, I think the scouts and his own coaches were unbelievably high on him. I think even more than I noticed when collecting information for the Stutzla story. So even his own coaches in, in like his club team coaches in Finland were saying that he was the best player at that age they'd ever seen, like better than uh, Granlund, better than Barkov, better than, you know, whoever, name any major Finnish prospect of the last 20 years. Uh, and they love his all around game, his smarts, his size, his reach, uh, so to me, he was the coach's pet kind of player. And because of that, I see Capo Caco being the more valuable real life player from projecting what their overall impact on the game is going to be for their career. Maybe he's going to be more of a winner. Maybe he's going to be more of a guy that's effective at both ends of the ice. But if we're talking fantasy upside, I go the other way. I think Tim Stutzla has a more impressive toolbox, just his raw speed, his ability to do things with a puck on his stick. He's more dynamic to me, his hands. So I think once he figures it out, to me, he has the upside to be, you know, an 80-point player, 90-point player, whatever it is, an all-star scorer, someone who competes for scoring titles. All of those things are still in play for Tim Stutzla. I know it's been a slow start this season, but he's played something like 84 games and he has 46 points, give or take, somewhere in that range, right? So it's not like he's been terrible so far in his NHL career. He's just getting his feet wet. And it's been a very sort of uh, unusual experience for players of his age in the last, in the first couple of years in the league, trying to navigate the pandemic as well. Uh, so I'm not worried. So that would be my, my overall summary. Real life, I think Capo Caco, but fantasy, I think Stutzla has, he has really still major dynamic upside. All right. Looking at the next question, I believe we got two left. Uh, Jerry says, hello, Matt. In a keeper league head-to-head, would you plan to keep Timo Meyer or Johnny Gujo for next year? League counts most main stats. He listed a bunch, but they're all like goals, points, everything. Um, when should you decide it is time to not keep a player? Yeah, so this is a tough one. The first part of the question, Meyer and Johnny Gaudreau, because, of course, Johnny Gaudreau is a pending UFA. We don't know where he's going to go, and that can obviously have a major impact on his value. If I'm predicting where he goes, I mean, he could stay stay in Calgary, but I think it's a homecoming to Philly. That's his childhood team. And if Claude Giroux leaves Philly, there's an opening on that first line left-wing spot as well. So I think that's where he's going to go if I had to make a prediction, but we can't sort of speculate on that when we're trying to project the keeper value. So to me, if you're looking for ceiling, um, I do understand the idea of chasing Gaudreau. He's really got his game back on track this year. He was actually pretty good down the stretch, uh, which surprised me under Daryl Sutter. He's not someone you think of as a Daryl Sutter player, but he's done a great job. Uh, and to me, he's still in his late 20s. He has many good seasons left in him, depending on where he ends up. If he's on a major contender, you could see a situation in which Johnny Gaudreau is a 100-point player. Uh, it's not outside the realm of possibility yet in his career. That said, if you're looking for the safer pick, and just given the stat categories that you were, you were showing us here, Jerry, I think that Meyer is safer. He's uh, several years younger than Johnny Gaudreau. He is a monster, absolute monster in the shots category. He's a better bet for goals as well. And he's also physical. He gives you hits. So I'd say safe pick, Meyer, upside play if you just need someone who could land in a situation in which 
he can be top 10 scorer in the league, then you can still go with Johnny Hockey because he has good years left in him. So the second question in terms of when you decide it's not, or it's time to not keep a player anymore. I think, you know, it depends on league configuration and what your keeper options are. You can never say never, but if I'm trying to look at it, sort of create a, a simple rule to follow, to me, when you're holding on to a guy who's a brand name, but his production isn't that much different from what you can find on the waiver wire, I think that's a sign that it's time to cut him. Or better yet, cash in on that brand name, trade him for a draft pick in your league, or package him with another player to get an even better keeper. Uh, and I wrote down an example. So let's say Sean Monaghan, who's a brand name. 2018-19 season at 34 goals. He's played 155 games since then and has 38 goals over that span. So that's a player a couple of years ago would be a keeper in most leagues. Now it's like you feel like he should be because he's still got that brand name, but the production has absolutely not been there at all. So that's someone I think you have to consider throwing back into the pool. There are guys you can pick up off waivers like Luke Cunningham in Nashville, whoever it is that's outproducing Sean Monaghan right now. So uh, that would be a rule that I would consider following. All right. The last question that we have here from Cheating Heel. Would you consider trading Kucherov in a keeper league points only where you can keep five players? My other options are McKinnon, Drake Seidel, Marner, Vasilevsky, and Carlson. Of course, the thing here to keep in mind, this part of the question was that uh, Kucherov just missed so much of the past two years. Yeah, I think that's a legitimate idea. And I think compared to the other players you have, it seems like this, you have a pretty good league here. You have a pretty, uh, or a pretty good team, like a powerhouse here, if these are your keepers. Uh, but with Kucherov... There's no denying he's going to be fantastic whenever he's in the lineup, but he playing on the team that he plays on. I think the Lightning have reached that prestige franchise juncture now where they just care about adding more championships. So they don't need to risk. They can do sort of load management for their star players down the stretch, right? So you could see a scenario in which Kucherov settles into kind of an Evgeny Malkin type of career. So Malkin and Pittsburgh, Penguins did the same thing. P Malkin was so often a dominant player in the playoffs, really important in all of their Stanley Cup runs, their three cup runs. But it became customary for him to play, you know, 65 games. There was always kind of a nagging injury that got him down the stretch. Kucherov's had obviously more serious injuries. But overall, I do think you could see him settling into being a player who plays, you know, 65, 70 games a year. He probably gets 85 points in 65 or 70 games every year. He's still dominant but they they save his reps because they want him fresh for the playoffs so based on that and all these other options you have are all younger than him have a lot of upside i think you're on the right track and i do think you could trade him he still has a lot of cachet a lot of value in a trade you could probably get a sweet haul for him all right that's it for the the questions uh we do actually we got a very late um like very late YouTube comments uh, or YouTube message about uh, a future starting lineup topic. And I'll just say it's uh, favorite movie moments. We'll save that for a different Ooh. episode, but that is a, that's a cool one. Cause you, the, people know you like to talk about movies, including yes. this specific topic. That's a good one. Yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll remember that for next time. Thank you for the topic. Uh, this one. So last week uh, I watched the movie King Richard, the story of Venus and Serena Williams and sort of told through the lens of their father, Richard, played by Will Smith. And I really liked the movie. I thought it was one of the better sports movies I've seen in a while. It truly is a sports movie. There's a lot of tennis, and you can tell the stunt work. It's like they put a lot of real tennis into the movie, so I was really impressed by that. I thought it was a great performance by Will Smith as well. He didn't try to overpower the movie. He wasn't begging for an Oscar, and I thought, ironically, that might actually get him an Oscar because he was really good and sort of undersold the performance. So it kind of got me thinking, you know, was that one of the better sports movies uh, that I've seen in the 2000s? And I thought, okay, it's too early to know that. I think you got to see the movie again, maybe another year to sort of see it where it fits. So I'm not going to include it on the list, but I do want to create a list of the best sports movies of the 2000s. One glaring omission, and this is a hockey news podcast. 
Miracle. And the reason why I don't have Miracle on the list, I'm going to turn this into a humble brag. I haven't seen it. And you know why I haven't seen Miracle? I did an oral history of the Miracle on Ice. I interviewed the whole team, okay, a couple years ago. So that was my experience with the Miracle on Ice, interviewing Al Michaels and Mike Ruzioni and Jim Craig. Again, I'm humble bragging this right now. But I don't need to watch Miracle because I got the real story, okay? That's why it's my favorite. It's, it's it's my it's my favorite hockey movie of all time. It's, I, I, know. I guess I just we we don't we because like like obviously we're Canadians, but we never really got like a like a similar style movie about the Summit series. Like they're, they're, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure like there's been like there's been like dramatic reenact like a reenactment documentary style things, but we haven't actually got like an actual movie to that level. I believe yeah. if I'm correct. That's a good idea. We should, we should get one of those going. I would watch it. Hey, you, sure. you, you've, you've got experience. I wouldn't watch it, apparently. You, you, you got experience writing movie stuff. So there we go. Yeah, we'll see. Okay, so the starting lineup, the greatest sports movies of the 2000s in random order. Uh, I think Moneyball is very clearly get working its way into the pantheon. It's based on a book that was extremely popular, but it's got great performances. And there is a little bit of fudging of certain details for dramatic effect, of course, in the movie. But it's great performance by Brad Pitt as well. And great script from Aaron Sorkin. It's got that snappy dialogue. And I think this is one of the better sports movies. I think Moneyball is one of the best sports movies ever, not just of, of the 2000s. So that's an easy one for the list. I think the movie Warrior is great. So it's the MMA story of the two brothers that end up fighting in this one night tournament. It's one night or one weekend. I forget what it is, but it's Tom Hardy who's like unrecognizable, completely changes his accent, changes his body. Joel Edgerton playing these brothers in this MMA tournament. You have to suspend your disbelief a little bit for sure, but it's just a really well acted movie. Nick Nolte plays their dad. He's amazing in it. It's emotional. Great sports movie. Uh, next one, Million Dollar Baby. Some people like to hate on Million Dollar Baby because there obviously are plot elements that are really really depressing about it, but I still think it's a great story. It's really kind of... Uh, heart-wrenching, heart-warming. The boxing scenes are really good too. And I think underrated, so Hilary Swank won the Oscar for it, but Clint Eastwood was really good in that movie too. He's someone that people like to make fun of, but in that movie, I think he was actually uh, like kind of touching in his performance. Next one, The Wrestler. People might argue is a professional wrestling movie, a sports movie. I think it is. It just really sheds light into what the athletes, and yes, athletes they are, what they have to put their bodies through for entertainment. Soulful performance from Mickey Rourke. He was robbed of an Oscar that year. And I just think a tremendous, tremendous movie and really just kind of raw and real and you feel for the character uh, and just gives you really great insight. You could tell it was really well researched into what at what these athletes have to go through when they've sort of washed out of being superstars at the WWE level, when they're sort of, you know, working the autograph circuits and these smaller circuits, putting their bodies through hell. So fantastic movie. Again, that would be an all-time list. This one's for you, Steven. It's a racing movie, Ford versus Ferrari. Love that movie. It's just a real crowd pleaser. It's about the 24-hour Le Mans race. And Christian Bale, especially, super charismatic performance. Uh, love that movie as well. Saw it recently. And then I'll put Creed on the list. So Creed, the retelling of the Rocky story, the reboot, of course, with Adonis Creed, played by Michael B. Jordan. It's Apollo Creed's son. It's got some real soul. The boxing scenes are really different from the other Rocky movies. They're sort of filmed in a way that makes it look a lot more real and just great storytelling and a great performance from Sly Stallone as well. Another guy who maybe was robbed of an Oscar for that movie. So those are my greatest sports movies of the 2000s. Now, uh, speaking of movies, I, I Moneyball for me, number one. Uh, like I love the movie. It's great. Did you ever watch Draft Day? I did. It, it's a guilty pleasure. Like it's pretty absurd, but it's kind of fun. Like my dad and I went and watched it in the theater. We got into it. It was, it was, it was fun. 
I don't care about football, but like it makes me want to play like Eastside Hockey Manager like every time I watch it. It's just it's not much fun. And uh, another like it's funny like you mentioned Ford vs Ferrari. That's not even my favorite racing movie from the two thousands. Like that to me, it's probably gonna be Rush. Uh, that movie is outstanding. About yeah, the, Rush, uh, Rush just missed the cut for me. I had it and I had to cut one movie from my list. It was Rush. Now the, this one will also show just how much younger I am. But I would also argue cars <laughs> it's a great movie if you can count that one as a if we're for counter racing movies in this cars could be in this argument too but uh, I, I guess it does i watched it with my daughter and she fell asleep and we've seen it we watched all the pixars and i found cars dull i'm telling okay. you cars 2 sucks cars 3's got a really good story to it uh but uh oh i'm also disappointed you didn't say driven the the, the all-time oh, yeah. the uh i listened to a podcast where someone actually said they liked it so anyways that's it Oh, yeah, that was Stallone trying to do his Days of Thunder. Okay, well, that was the starting lineup, and this was the Hockey News Fantasy Podcast. Hope you were okay sticking it out with me in what appears to be a dungeon with a blank white wall. I apologize for that, but uh, hopefully it was at least some good advice for you. Good luck in your leagues going forward, and we'll be back in a couple weeks.